If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In 1623, in a Dutch fort on Amben, a remote island in what is now Indonesia, a young Japanese mercenary working for the Dutch was arrested for asking suspicious questions and interrogated using torture. Within just 15 days, 21 people were dead, and two nations were set at odds. Historian Adam Clulow has been grappling with the Amboyne conspiracy case, investigating why events escalated as quickly as they did. Adam is one of the winners of this year's Dan David Prize, awarded for outstanding historical scholarship. And he joined me to explore the story of the trial in more depth. Thank you so much for joining me, Adam. You're joining us today to talk about the Amboyne case. So it was a controversial conspiracy trial that unfolded 400 years ago um, in 1623. Can you introduce us to the case and tell us what drew you to it? So the whole case starts um, in February 1623. And it starts with a young Japanese soldier called Shichizo, um, and he's arrested for asking questions 
on the walls of a remote fort um, in modern-day Indonesia. So he's um, arrested by the Dutch East India Company. He's actually in the employ of the Dutch East India Company, but he's arrested by the Dutch East India Company for asking these suspicious questions, and he is uh, very quickly tortured. He's actually waterboarded, and he confesses that he's part of a conspiracy to seize control of the Dutch East India Company fort. And he confesses that this conspiracy has been orchestrated by the English East India Company. So once um, this confession happens, the whole case really ramps up very quickly. The VOC governor proceeds to arrest, um, torture, um, uh, uh, and um, ultimately to execute uh, 10 English merchants. And by the end of the trial, the trial happens very quickly, so it's about a two-week trial. By the end of the trial, the Dutch governor finds 10 English merchants and 10 Japanese mercenaries guilty, and they're executed. So we have these incidents that are happening in Asia, but once the news hits Europe, it sparks immense controversy. Now, I first became interested in the case in 2005, so I was doing archival research uh, in the National Archives in the Netherlands, and this has millions of documents that are connected to the Dutch East India Company. And I started to come across these huge stacks of incredibly detailed documents about the Amboyne trial. And these documents are really unlike anything that I'd ever encountered before. Most 17th century cases leave a very limited imprint on the record. But these were incredibly detailed documents filled with accusations, counter-accusations, filled with these lurid accounts of torture, for example. But the single biggest point that really drew me to the case was that it all starts with these questions of this young Japanese mercenary. My original field is Japanese history, and I just became fascinated by the forces that drew this young Japanese soldier to this remote fort in modern-day Indonesia that drew him to enter the service of the Dutch East India Company. And this individual really becomes the center of this incredibly famous, incredibly controversial conspiracy case. So I just started digging and digging, and the more I started digging, I just became hooked on this case, and I spent around a decade working on it. And it's a fascinating case to get to grips with. You've got a website in which visitors to the website can basically see a prosecution case and a defence case and decide which they think seems more convincing because it's very contested, isn't it? But I think to take us right back to the beginning before we delve into it in some more depth, in order to understand this case, I think you really need to understand the geopolitical backdrop of it, don't you? Um, Ambon was an island in a remote part of Southeast Asia in what is today Indonesia. So can you set the scene for us? What was happening there in the 1620s? It's of huge geopolitical importance in the 17th century. Ambon um, is not particularly well known today, but in the 17th century, it's immensely significant, and it's immensely significant because of the spice trade. So Ambon is a key producer of cloves, which is one of three spices that are incredibly, incredibly valuable for Europeans in this period. So there's three spices, there's nutmeg, mace, and cloves that really stand at the top of a hierarchy for precious spices, and Europeans are desperate to corner the market in these spices. Now, it's partly because the spices are very useful um, in terms of flavors that they give to wine, flavors they give to meat, but they also have these potent medicinal attributes. So they're supposed to stop diarrhea, for example. They're supposed to sharpen the brain, improve the memory, give you sweet breath. They have all these different medicinal attributes. Now, these spices are concentrated in a very small area in Southeast Asia. So this is the Maluku's, a remote set of islands that's also known as the Spice Islands. And Ambon and Boinia is one part of these. Now, the islands are incredibly isolated. They're not controlled by a single power. 
And this makes them incredibly appealing to European organizations like the Dutch East India Company, the English East India Company, because they think if they can get control of these islands, they can essentially corner the market in precious spices. And precious spices, you can buy them very, very cheaply in Southeast Asia, and you can sell them for a huge markup in Europe. Um, according to some estimates, you can sell them for a 40,000% markup in Europe. So you buy them cheaply, and they're incredibly profitable if you can get them all the way to Europe. And they're concentrated in a very small geographical area. So the Dutch East India Company, the English East India Company, starts to have these dreams of monopolizing the trade in precious spices, and it triggers what is conventionally described as a spice race. But that's really a very limited kind of designation for what actually happens because it very quickly escalates into a spice war. So we see thousands of casualties, actually tens of thousands of casualties, if we include indigenous communities in Southeast Asia. And very quickly, it ramps up from this commercial competition into this all-out spice war. And it's the spice war that forms the crucial backdrop for the Amboina conspiracy trial because so the Spice Islands are some of the most valuable real estate in the 17th century, and both the Dutch and the English East India Company are desperately trying to get control of them because then they can monopolize the trade in precious spices. And the Dutch East India Company is at the heart of this story, really. But for listeners who aren't familiar, can you explain a bit about the Dutch East India Company and, and the power it wielded in Southeast Asia? Was it a government body? Was it a private entity? What were its aims? It's a very difficult organization to characterize because it is a commercial organization. It is focused on trade. It is arguably the world's first multinational company, and every multinational company that exists today can in some ways trace their roots to this organization. So it's incredibly important as a company, but it's also a hybrid organization that is part company, part kingdom. And the crucial document to understand the company is its 1602 charter. So it's chartered in 1602, and the Dutch state gives the new organization the suite of essentially sovereign powers. So it has the right to conduct diplomacy, it has the right to maintain military forces, it has the right to seize control over territory, it has the right to establish colonies. So it's a commercial organization, but it's also a political and military actor. And so it pushes into Southeast Asia, and it's really focused on Southeast Asia, it's focused on the spice trade, but it uses these powers that are granted by its charter to morph into what is essentially an Asian state. It's chartered in 1602. In 1605, it seizes its first colony. It sends out diplomatic embassies, so it conducts diplomatic relations with other states. It has a powerful navy. It conducts maritime violence, for example. And so very quickly, yes, it's a company in Europe, but in Asia, very quickly it turns into a hybrid organization, part company, part state. And if you look at how other Asian states treat it, so I'm a specialist in Japanese history, for example, how does the Japanese state treat it? They view it very much as a state in its own right. So in all sorts of different ways, it is a company, but it's also this hybrid organization, part company, part state. Now, the Dutch East India Company is under the Dutch state, so it's under the authority of the Dutch state, but the Dutch state is six months away in terms of communication. So it takes a long time for a letter to arrive, it takes a long time for communication to arrive, and so the company is essentially acting as an independent, quasi-sovereign organization. 
So when we think about the Dutch East India Company and its possession on Ambon, yes, it's officially that the Dutch state has official sovereignty, but it's effectively the Dutch East India Company that owns this colony, that garrisons this colony, that has to protect this colony, and it's the Dutch East India Company that it's incredibly worried about other powers seizing control of Ambon. And of course, central to that was the English East India Company, and that Amboyne case is part of a wider rivalry between the Dutch and the English. The Dutch and the English were actually allies in Europe. So what was going on in Asia? Yeah, it's very striking because the Dutch and the English are natural allies in Europe. There are two Protestant powers. Uh, the Dutch Republic is, in effect, a rebel state. So it's actually in revolt against Spain. It's waging this war with the incredibly powerful Spanish state, the Spanish Empire. And, of course, England is confronting Spain at the same time. England fights off the Spanish Armada, for example, in 1588. These are very close powers in Europe. But the picture looks very different in Asia because you have the English East India Company and the Dutch East India Company, these two rival commercial organizations. And these companies are locked in a state of competition because they both want to dominate the spice trade. So they move into Southeast Asia. They see the enormous profits in the spice trade. They know their allies back in Europe, but these are companies that have to, um, they're, they're focused on their bottom line. They have to turn a profit. And very quickly, they start to see themselves as intense uh, commercial competitors. Now, it starts off and it's a relatively friendly competition, but very quickly it escalates. They start to see violence. We start to see uh, maritime attacks on each other's shipping. It ramps up from a, from a race over spices to really a war over the spice trade. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. 
playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. So I think you've done a good job there of setting the scene um, of tensions and and the geopolitics at play really um, at the time. But let's talk about the Ambonia incident itself now. What can you tell us about the incident that sparked this whole case off? Yeah, so um, it, it all starts with the questions of this young Japanese soldier. So he is walking the battlements um, in Amboina in February 1623. He's employed by the Dutch East India Company, and he's asking what appear to be these suspicious questions. So he's asking these questions about um, how often the garrison has changed, how many soldiers there are. Now, the Dutch governor, he hears about these questions, and he very quickly decides these questions are suspicious. He hauls down um, the the Japanese soldier, he brings him into the interrogation room, and he asks him a very basic question, why are you asking these questions? So why why are you trying to find out about the, the garrison? Why are you trying to find out how often the guard has changed? And Shichizo, who's the young Japanese soldier at the center of all of this, he gives the worst possible answer. So he says, um, I'm asking them for my own amusement, for my own pleasure. Now, we can talk about the language that the interrogation actually happens in. Um, It doesn't happen in Japanese. It doesn't happen in Dutch. It actually happens in a third language, Malay. And it's very unclear how um, confident Shichizo is in this language. But he gives this question that is very unsatisfactory to the Dutch governor. The Dutch governor immediately decides to torture him. So he's tortured using a torture that is described as the torture of water, a torture that we know as waterboarding. And Shichizo then confesses that he's part of a wider plot orchestrated by English East India Company merchants. And very quickly from that confession, the case escalates extremely rapidly. Ten Japanese soldiers are arrested, they're interrogated, they're tortured, they confess. Ten English merchants are arrested, um, they're interrogated, they're tortured, they confess. And the case moves very, very rapidly. And by the time it starts on February 23rd, by March 9th, 21 people are dead. So one interpretation of events here would be that the Dutch uncovered this suspicious young soldier and from that found this entire conspiracy against them. But it's not necessarily that simple, is it? What are some of the other interpretations of events? So Shishito um, is found asking questions about the garrison and how often the guard has changed. And then he's immediately called down by the governor and he's interrogated. Now, there's a few interpretations. Um, The Dutch interpretation is that this is highly suspicious. Why is he asking questions about this? Um, Why does he want to know when the guard has changed? Why does he want to know the size of the garrison? The other possible um, answer that is put forward by um, English writers is that he's simply doing his duty as a good soldier. This is a very dangerous part of the world. The Dutch Center Company has lots of enemies. And if you're a soldier, you should want to know how good are the defenses? Is this um, a, a secure place? Are there enough soldiers that are ready to defend it? I would add in a third possible interpretation, which is possibly the one that I'm closest to, which is... Um, Shichizo doesn't really know what what questions he's asking, and there's a lot of misinterpretation here. And I think a key aspect of this, which has been ignored, is the issue of language. So often it's assumed that Shichizo speaks perfect Dutch, for example, because he's been recruited by the Dutch East India Company, 
or all of these interrogations are happening in Dutch. But in fact, all the questions are happening in Malay, which is a third language. And to me, that's probably the most likely interpretation that it's not actually clear exactly what questions Shichizou is asking initially, because he's asking these questions in a language that he has a very limited capacity of. The Dutch um, uh, uh, soldiers who are hearing these questions, uh, Malay is also a second or third language to them. And then when Shichizou is interrogated and asked why he's asking these questions, all of these interrogations happen in Malay. So the the Dutch view, which is based um, on interrogations conducted through torture, is they have uncovered a sprawling conspiracy. Now, this is a conspiracy that links the English uh, merchants in Amboinia, connects them to the Japanese soldiers, also connects them to enslaved people who are in the the, the fort at Amboinia. And the Dutch imagine they have discovered this sprawling conspiracy designed to essentially seize control of Amboinia involved that are linked together. That's one possible interpretation. The other possible interpretation is that there's nothing there, that essentially all of the confessions are extracted via torture. And this is one of the most controversial parts of the case, that everything rests on confessions that are extracted via waterboarding. So, so there's these two diametrically opposed views. Now, in my classes, um, I've been teaching with the Amboina case for about 10 years, um, and I try the case with students. So I get students, and we discuss the case, and we investigate the materials, and we try the case from different angles. And the students in the class, they rarely split. Some students believe absolutely there was some sort of case. Some students believe there was just a kernel of something. Maybe the English had plotted something, but there was no big conspiracy. Many other students are absolutely convinced that there was nothing there. And this is the difficulty of the Amboinia case. There's so many materials. um, There's tens of thousands of documents. And you put them all together, and you get this, what I describe as this Rashomon-like kaleidoscope of different views, different possibilities. I've dug into the materials for the past 10 years. Um, I find it very difficult to believe that there was this big, sprawling conspiracy. But was there a kernel of something that is very, very difficult to disprove? But in fact, what really interests me is not this absolute question, was there a conspiracy? Wasn't there a conspiracy? What fascinates me is how quickly the case escalates to this incredibly controversial episode that really pits the English East India Company, the Dutch East India Company against each other, but even more importantly, the English state and the Dutch state against each other. So that's an interesting question. Why do you think that events escalated so quickly? Were the Dutch looking for a reason to to target English um, traders in the region? Um, so there was tremendous paranoia about the English East India Company. Um, if you look at Dutch East India Company accounts of the English, they describe them um, as treacherous serpents, for example, and they constantly think that the English East India Company is plotting against them. So that's part of the story, Um, but even more important is the sense of fear that is rippling through the Dutch garrison in Amboinia. And to me, this is the the key aspect of the case that hasn't been investigated enough, but is really important to understanding the case. So often there's a view, uh, particularly in English language accounts of Amboinia, that the Dutch are incredibly powerful in Amboinia, the Dutch Zinder Company is an ascendant organization in the 17th century, and there's this notion that the Dutch Cedar Company is a hugely powerful, confident organization, and it's essentially looking for an excuse um, to kick the English out of Amboina. 
But if you actually look at the Dutch documents from 1623, the overwhelming characteristic that you see is fear and paranoia. The Dutch East India Company is incredibly fearful about its position in Southeast Asia. It's incredibly fearful about its position in Amboinia, and it imagines all of these colonial nightmares all around it. And what I argue in the book is they stitch together different colonial nightmares until they create this enormous conspiracy that links together all of the different um, threats that they face in Amboinia, all the different fears that they have. And to me, that that's really the key factor to understand here, the sense of fear that is rippling through Amboinia, that is driving the Dutch East India Company investigation, that is driving Dutch East India Company officials, that is pushing forward this case. They immediately assume all these array of plotters waiting in the shadows determines to strike them. And it's this sense of fear, this sense of paranoia that underpins everything that happens in Amboinia. Well, something that you've alluded to throughout, which I'm really intrigued by, is this, as you say, this array of people, this patchwork of different people who were in Amboinia. So as well as the Dutch and the English, we have Japanese mercenaries and you referred to enslaved people. Can you tell us a bit about those people and their their role in this, but also their status in Amboinia and their role there? Yeah, so so Japanese soldiers um, are my initial point of interest. I'm by training a historian of Japan. Uh, the Dutch Sender Company is always struggling. It has colonies, but it's struggling with a huge shortage of military manpower. And so it's very difficult um, to ship um, recruits from Europe. Um, there's a high mort- mortality rate when you bring recruits all the way from Europe, and it takes a lot of time. So the Dutch East India Company has got a base that they established in Japan, and they look around in Japan and they see tens of thousands of unemployed warriors, because Japan is transitioning from a state of war to a state of peace. Dutch East India Company officials start to believe that they can recruit thousands of soldiers in Japan, ship them to Southeast Asia, and these soldiers will fight on behalf of the Dutch East India Company, and the Dutch East India Company can use these soldiers to massively expand its territorial holdings and to drive out the Spanish and the Portuguese. So high-ranking Dutch officials start to believe Japanese soldiers are the solution to their problems with military recruitments. They have these very grand visions to recruit thousands of soldiers from Japan to ship them over to Southeast Asia. Now, the problem is that not everyone is convinced um, by this idea. The Dutch hierarchy, the Dutch governor general, for example, is fascinated by this idea of recruiting large numbers of Japanese soldiers. But Dutch officials on the ground who actually um, are, are dealing with these Japanese soldiers are not convinced. So one official um, explains, for example, in one of my favorite quotes, the Japanese are dangerous to govern outside their land. They are like lambs in Japan and devils outside their land. So very quickly, um, Dutch officials in places like Amboinia start to get suspicious about these Japanese recruits, and they start to think of them as a potential fifth column. Now, while this is happening, the Dutch East India Company is also moving very aggressively into the business of large-scale slavery. So we, we think of the company as a commercial organization. It is a commercial organization. 
that it has these territorial holdings that it has to populate in some way. It has to get workers for these territorial holdings. It initially thinks about bringing large numbers of colonists from Europe. That proves extremely difficult to do. The company is dissatisfied with the kind of colonists it can get from Europe. And the company starts to think, as as other European empires do, they start to think about populating their new territories with coerced labor, with enslaved people. So it sends ships to India, sends ships to South Asia, and it's bringing back in one vessel alone a thousand enslaved people. So what makes Amboina so interesting is, yes, it's a Dutch fort. We refer to it as a Dutch fort. Um, There's Dutch East India Company officials there, but a relatively small number of Dutch East India Company officials. There's also Japanese soldiers. There's also hundreds of slaves who've been brought from um, Southeast, South Asia, from other parts of Southeast Asia. And so when the company um, discovers these reports of uh, Shichizou, this young Japanese soldier, asking these questions, they start to stitch together all these colonial nightmares. They say, okay, it must be the English. And the English must be acting in concert with these Japanese soldiers. And these Japanese soldiers must also be acting in concert with enslaved people who are held within the fort of Amboina, and there's going to be a slave uprising. And that's what's so striking about the case. They're worried about a slave revolt. So they bring in the slave revolt to their imagining of the conspiracy. They're worried about Japanese soldiers. So they bring in Japanese soldiers to their imagining of the conspiracy. They're worried about uh, neighboring powers, so neighboring Asian states. So they bring in these Asian states. And eventually, the plot that they construct in their minds is this huge, sprawling conspiracy linking together lots of different parties. But of course, to the Dutch at the time, it seemed like their worst fears had been confirmed when they extracted confessions through torture. And the veracity of confession under torture is one of the central issues in this case. What were some of the controversies around torture at the time? Yeah, so so torture is part um, of Dutch legal proceedings in this period. But one of the problems with the Amboina conspiracy case um, is that the trial is run incredibly badly by the advocate fiscal. So the advocate fiscal is the Dutch legal official who's in charge of it, and he runs a legal trial that can only be characterized as a kind of legal mess. So there actually are strict rules about how to use torture. Um, They're fairly easy rules to exploit, but there's fairly strict rules about how to use torture. You can torture someone, for example, but then you have to wait 24 hours, and then they have to confirm their confession without torture. Now, that seems like a high bar. It's actually a very low bar, because if they don't confirm their torture, then you can just torture them again. But there is a basic rule um, in uh, Dutch legal proceedings that you torture someone, you wait 24 hours, they confirm their confession without torture, and then you you enter it in the record. If you look at the legal case that is actually conducted at Amboina, all of these rules are broken. So the advocate fiscal who's actually running this case, he, because he has so such limited experience, he's a very ambitious individual, but has very limited experience, he constructs a huge, um, hugely controversial case that violates all of the basic rules of Dutch justice. So that's one controversy. The other controversy is that the torture that is used is waterboarding. Now, waterboarding is an act of simulated drowning. So essentially, you put a cloth around someone's uh, face and you pour water in to create a sense of drowning. And this is the same uh, torture technique, um, what was referred to as a technique of enhanced interrogation, that was used by the Bush administration, for example. 
Now, everyone agrees this is a very brutal torture technique, and very quickly, Dutch officials realize they have to start defending it. Um, And so what happens as they start getting criticized in Europe, Dutch officials realize they have to start to defend it, um, and they start justifying this as a uniquely moderate torture. So they'll say, for example, that it's not a torture like pulling out a fingernail, for example. It's not a torture like the rack that inflicts physical damage. It's a psychological torture because what does it do? It, It is the fear of drowning. It is simulated drowning. So there's two controversies related to torture. There's first the actual mechanics. Are the rules of Dutch justice followed? Are all of the boxes ticked in terms of how a trial should actually happen, how torture should be used? And the whole case is a legal mess. And the second is, how brutal is this torture? Can you rely on confessions that are extracted via waterboarding? But of course, the position from English East India Company officials is this is an incredibly brutal torture. The act of simulated drowning, what is in fact actually drowning a person by, by, by pouring huge amounts of water um, so they cannot breathe. And so English East India Company officials essentially argue that no confession that comes out of this trial can actually be relied upon because they're all extracted using this incredibly brutal form of torture. So when news of everything that had happened at Ambonia, including, as you say, this waterboarding, reached Europe, what happened? How did the news go down in the Netherlands and in England? The incident happens in February 1623. Um, it reaches London um, around May 1624, and it sparks immediate outrage. And what the English Internet Company does very effectively is it starts to print these cheap pamphlets. So it prints cheap pamphlets that present the most incendiary accounts of what had, ha- what had happened in Anboynia. These pamphlets have images of very, very brutal torture, And very quickly, the Amboyna conspiracy trial enters the public sphere. So you have these these cheap um, uh, pamphlets that are presented, and very quickly, everyone is talking about Amboyna. The English theater company then wages a very sophisticated propaganda campaign. So they take what happened, they present it in the most terrible terms possible, they present this as the most brutal torture, they add on additional invented torture, they print these incredibly uh, grotesque and gruesome images of English merchants being tortured, and they circulate these pamphlets in very significant numbers. So what happens is it goes from a conspiracy trial in Asia to then becoming a major source of outrage in Europe. And and we see, because of these pamphlets, and we should really think about what happens um, after Amboynia as a kind of war of pamphlets, because the Dutch East India Company responds with its own cheap pamphlets that are essentially trying to um, defend what what the company did in Amboynia. And very quickly, this case escalates from a kind of controversy between the Dutch East India Company and the English East India Company to become a case that rarely gets national attention because these are relatively literate societies. These pamphlets are printed in significant numbers. These images are very striking. The king gets involved on the English side. There's so many different publications. And very quickly, this becomes a source of major tension between England and the Dutch Republic. And can you tell us a bit more about that tension and the impact of the case on relations between England and the Netherlands? Yeah, so the, the English East India Company receives the news um, and very quickly it commissions it, its own account of what happens in Amboynia. 
So it produces a pamphlet called The True Relation of the Unjust, Cruel, and Barbarous Proceedings Against the English in Amboina. And that title will give you a, a pretty fair sense of the content. The company then takes this pamphlet, this pamphlet is widely distributed, and it takes it to the king. So it seeks the king's support. Uh, this is James I. There's accounts of the English East India Company visiting the king's bedchamber with the pamphlet. And very quickly, um, the king gets involved in this. This is seen as um, a terrible injustice against English subjects in Asia. And very quickly, the king starts to protest this. And what happens is the English Eastern Company is waging this very successful propaganda campaign in England, getting together lots of allies, getting together public opinion, getting together the king, getting together the parliament, getting together lots of different powerful forces. In the Netherlands, the Dutch East India Company is doing exactly the same thing. So the Dutch East India Company gets the States General, which is the Dutch Parliament, on its side. And very quickly, both companies mobilize all of the assets of state power. And in fact, the Amboina Conspiracy case provides the backdrop to a whole series of conflicts that are fought out in subsequent decades between England and the Netherlands. So the Anglo-Dutch War, for example, the first Anglo-Dutch War happens from 1652 to 1654. Amboina is in the backdrop here. And so Amboina is a cause of a significant worsening of relations between England and the Netherlands, provides a huge source of tension, not just for years, but for decades between England and the Dutch Republic, who used to be very close allies in Europe. So it's clear that the case had a big geopolitical impact. But apart from that, why do you think it's still interesting to look at 400 years on? It's in part because um, the mystery of the case remains. So was there a plot? What kind of plot was there? Is the whole thing just fabrications from torture? Was there actually something there? Do you think we will ever know the answer to that? Um, I I've dug into the case for about uh, 10, 12 years now. And when I started doing this, I've read tens of thousands of pages of documents connected to this. When I started doing this, I was convinced that I would find some sort of smoking gun, some sort of document that would be absolutely irrefutable proof there was a conspiracy, there wasn't a conspiracy. There are tens of thousands of documents connected to this case. When you go to the archives, the National Archives in the Netherlands, they'll pull out enormous amounts of records that are connected to it. For all the time that I've spent in the archives, for all the time I've spent in the records, I've never been able to find something definitive that can say absolutely 100% there was no conspiracy or absolutely 100% there was a conspiracy of some kind. But to me, um, I, I don't think we're ever going to resolve it. But to me, that's actually not the most interesting question. I suspect we'll be debating, was there an Amboina conspiracy case for the next 400 years? And unless there's some smoking gun hidden in the records that I haven't seen, I don't think this will ever be resolved. People have very strong feelings about it. I don't think we'll ever get to an absolute consensus. I don't think there's any smoking gun on the record. But for me, the most interesting thing is how this case escalates so quickly, how it goes from one 23-year-old Japanese soldier asking questions in a remote fort in Indonesia into a global conspiracy case that really poisons relations between England and the Netherlands. And that I think we can answer. And that's what really fascinates me, how these incidents, this, this episode in a remote part of Southeast Asia, then rises to become one of the most famous legal cases in history, rises to become a central point of contention between England and the Netherlands, and continues to attract attention 400 years from the initial events. 
that was Adam Clulo. Adam is one of the winners of this year's Dan David Prize, which recognises outstanding scholarship that seeks to anchor public discourse in a deeper understanding of the past. You can find out more about the prize at dandavidprize.org. And if you'd like to read more about the Amboyne case and give your verdict on whether there really was a conspiracy, head to Adam's brilliant interactive website, which is amboyne.org. That's A-M-B-O-Y-N-A dot org. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.